Today I want to talk about a couple of more things that we can do to prepare for the coming kingdom of God. You know, many people today recognize the world is a mess, that things are happening. You know, I came across a book some time ago written by David Jeremiah, who's an evangelist, has his own radio program. But the title of his book was, I Never Thought I Would See the Day. I never thought I would see the day whenever the things are beginning to happen that are happening today. And this was written about 10 years ago. So he really needs edition number two. Because <laughs> things are worse today than they were 10 years ago. And there are literally dozens of books talking about the demise of the United States. Another book was entitled uh, by Patrick Buchanan, I think. Um, Will, the Amer- will America survive until 2025? Will America make it until 2025? That's only about five years from now. He wrote another book entitled The Death of the West. He's talking about Western civilization, about what's happening. So we're not the only people talking about a dangerous time ahead. There literally, be, literally have been dozens of books and people writing about these things. They see the problems getting worse, and they don't see any solutions in sight, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's Europe. In fact, there was an article that came out earlier this year. It says, will the world come apart in 2019? Is 2019 the year the world comes apart? Now, we're almost to the end of 2019, so it may not be this year. Another article came out, will Europe fragment in 2020? So we're living in a period of time that is very uneasy, very uncertain. A lot of people have no hope. It's interesting, years ago, Mr. Armstrong made the comment that the world is what its leaders have made it. The world is what our leaders have made it. He's talking about educational leaders. He's talking about political leaders. The leaders of this world are actually molded by the teachers of this world. The political leaders today have been molded by the teachers in the past decade or two or three. You know, the radicals in the 60s said that to to bring America to its knees, to to, to point this nation in another direction, we need to begin a march through the institutions. We need to begin a march through the institutions. We need to take over the judgeships. We need to take over the courts. We need to take over the political leaders. We need to take over the universities. We need to take over the schools. And you mold the next generation that comes through to think like you want them to think. And this is what's been happening over the last 20, 30, 40 years. The world today we're looking at is the result of misguided education. Misguided education. If you've got kids in school, you learn very quickly the values that are being promoted in schools today. I don't want to go through all of them here today. But uh, the values being promoted to young people today, sex education in first grade, second grade, And we could go on and on and on. These are the values being pumped out today in the educational system. So what I want to talk about today is education. Talking about preparing to teach. 
preparing to teach. That's one of the reasons that we're here, is to learn how to teach God's way of life that's literally going to change the world. It's hard to believe, but that's, that's what our job is going to be. And Mr. Ames made the comment in the film the other day that we need to prepare and be ready for what is coming. We need to be ready to teach. You know, if I suddenly decided, I don't think I want to give the sermon, I want to call on somebody, have you raise your hand. <laughs> if you've been in a church 20 or 30 years, you should be able to come up and pick up where I left off. Because you've been through these scriptures. You've been through these scriptures. So let's put this in a biblical context. Turn to Revelation 11, verse 15. What is going to happen when Jesus Christ returns? Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven. We've had loud voices with the flyover here this morning. (laughs) But it literally can shake the room. The voices in heaven, the kingdoms of this world, and this is the announcement that's being made, have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Verse 18, it says, the nations were angry. They don't want this intervention by Jesus Christ. Nations were angry. Your wrath has come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. So there's a reward coming. We're going to be reigning with Jesus Christ as we read in Revelation 5 and verse 10. And you'll destroy those who destroy the earth. Mr. Johnson's comment in the sermon, sermonette this morning, about how the the whole creation is going to be free. The whole creation is going to be reoriented. It's going to rejoice, just like we are rejoicing here. This is what's coming. We're going to be able to teach other people how to do this, how to make the earth blossom like a rose. I don't think Christ is going to come back with a big wand and just go, and everything blossoms. It takes time. It takes time. You you stop polluting the environment. You you take away the, the, the cause, and then it takes the environment time to regrow. You clear cut a forest. I think it takes about 20, 30 some years for a mature forest to develop. But it takes time to do that if you do things God's way. He's going to reward his servants, the saints, and he's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. He's going to put an end to that. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 30 and tie this into teaching. And we're told in Revelation 5.10 that we're going to be kings and priests. So he's talking there about civil leadership. Uh, religious leadership, kings and priests. But if we go to Isaiah chapter 30 in verses 20 and 21. Again, I mentioned the other day that Isaiah is the Messianic prophet. He talks about the future. He talks about the return of Jesus Christ, what's going to happen on this earth when Christ returns. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 20 and 21. It says, for the people shall dwell, let's start in verse 19, the people shall dwell at Zion in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. God is going to wipe away all tears. You shall weep no more. He will be gracious to you at the sound of your cry when he hears it and he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity, you know, we're going to be 
facing the consequences of decisions that we have made and the governments that we have in this earth. We're going to face those things. And God is going to punish those who he has blessed incredibly. You know, why are the Israelite nations going to face the brunt of the tribulation? Because we have been blessed incredibly. Why do people want to come here from other nations? Because of the opportunities that are here. You know, some of my travels in East Africa, some of the rural villages out there, you come into the village, the road's not paved. And you go into a little shop, which is the grocery store, and it's two-by-fours with some bags of rice and some bags of uh, beans and maybe some soft drinks. And when they're gone, they're gone. And you come back to the States and you walk into Publix or one of these big markets and you just see aisles <laughs> stacked with anything you could ever want. That's why people come here. They see the abundance that we have. And yet, you know, our brethren that we have out in East Africa and some of these other places, they have the same hope that you do of the coming kingdom of God. But I think many of them think we already have the kingdom of God here. They don't. I think their hope is really, their only hope is the kingdom of God in this life. Yet we have quite a bit now. But we're turning our back on God. We're turning away from God. And there's going to be consequences for that. So that's what's being talked about here. Though God gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. This is the way you solve the world's problems. We're going to look at some of those this morning. But there is a way that leads to peace and joy and happiness, and there's a way that leads to something totally different. So we're going to talk about that today. Let's look at one other scripture in Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. This is what lies ahead for those of you that make it into the kingdom of God and for people that live over into the kingdom of God. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 to 4. It says, Woe to the shepherds that destroy and scatter my sheep, or that scatter the sheep of my pasture. As I mentioned the other day, we had 150,000 people at the feast about 25 years ago. And those people have been scattered, scattered to the four winds because of the teaching that was introduced at that time that many people recognized was wrong. Others were, well, they told us we could do this and they told us we could do that. The question is, who are they? Were they speaking from the word of God? Or were they preaching their own ideas? Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings. People are going to reap what they've sown. And the leader's going to reap what they've sown. You know, Jesus had a big issue with the religious leaders of his own day. And he upbraided them. But then in verse 3 it says, But I will gather the remnant of my flock 
out of all the countries where I have driven them. And our people are going to go into captivity, some sort of captivity, whether it's military, economic, whatever. I mean, that's the prophecies. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. This is the future. This is the future. And I will set shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, uh, nor, the, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up David to David, a branch of righteousness, and the king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in all the earth. We've been called to become these shepherds, to take care of sheep, to teach the world, God's way. That's why we're here. That's the future. God is going to use the saints to teach the world his way. So what are we going to teach? I want to go into three aspects this morning. And I'm sure that the other sermons will be given throughout the week. We're going to be talking about other aspects of what we're going to be doing. Number one, first thing I want to focus on, we're going to be teaching mankind about the true God. We're going to be teaching mankind about the true God, that God is real. We're also going to be teaching about the facts of the Bible. The Bible is the inspired word of God. Now, the world doesn't teach that today. In fact, many schools and colleges today, the Bible is a bunch of myths and stories. Uh, Some people are saying it's a forgery. The people's name that's on the book really didn't write the book. This is what's being promoted today. The Bible's just a bunch of myths and stories. The miracles never happened. This is what many young people are being exposed to in college. Uh, It comes through in the media. We're going to be teaching mankind about the true God. I would encourage you to go back and just read through some of the examples. In In the book of Exodus, Chapter 20, verse 1 to 3. Maybe just jot these down where God says to the Israelites, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. And we're to have no other gods before the true God. It's one of the Ten Commandments. But God made it very clear, not only to the Israelites, but he made it clear to other Gentile leaders of the world. When you read about what the third plague in Egypt, the plague of lice, you know, Moses did certain miracles, and then the magicians of Egypt said, oh, no big deal, we can do the same thing, watch. But they get to the third one with the lice. Uh, they couldn't duplicate the miracle. They couldn't duplicate the miracle in Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 to 19. And their conclusion was what? This is the finger of God. (laughs) This is the finger of God that did this. This wasn't human beings. So the Pharaoh saw that it was a power there that he didn't actually have. In Daniel chapter 3, when uh, Daniel's three friends were thrown into the fiery furnace, they threw in three guys. Then they looked in the furnace. What did they see? They saw four. They saw four. 
And then they called to these three guys, come on out. And they came out, didn't smell like smoke. You know, you stand by somebody smoking a cigarette, you, you smell like that <laughs> later on. But they didn't smell like smoke. And Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion was no other God could deliver you guys. There's got to be a real God. So God was revealing himself, not just to the Israelites. In this case, it was delivering himself to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar went insane. Daniel chapter 4. When he got his mind back, uh, he came to the conclusion that there really is a real God. Darius, in Daniel chapter 6, threw Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel was framed, and they tossed him in. Whenever he came out, Darius says, basically, you know, there is a living God. This just doesn't happen. This just doesn't happen. So God was revealing himself. As I mentioned yesterday or the other day, Isaiah, excuse me, Ezekiel has a number of prophecies, a number of prophecies. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. And then he mentions about 60 times in the book of Ezekiel. When I begin to do these things, they will know that I am God. They will know that I am God. And this is what's coming. This is what's coming. Psalm 46, verse 10, God says, I will be exalted among the nations when they realize who is doing these things. I want you to turn a couple of scriptures here in Job chapter 12. We don't usually go to Job for a lot of things, especially this. (laughs) But you go to Job chapter 12 and verse 23. I've used this scripture and some others quite a bit in the series that we've done in the Tomorrow's World magazine on uh, turning points in world history. Because people today don't think God is involved with uh, world events that much. You know, Thomas Jefferson and some of the guys that were founding fathers, they were deists or they had deist ideas, which they believe in God. They believe in God, but they didn't believe that God actually intervenes in world affairs. That's not totally true because George Washington asked the troops to pray on numerous occasions. And there were results from those prayers. But Deus generally believed that there is a God, but he, he just kind of wound things up and then goes off ways and just let things run. But in Job chapter 12, verse 23, it says, He makes nations great and he destroys them. In other words, God allows nations to rise and then he brings them down, especially when they turn away from him. He makes nations great, destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people. He takes away the understanding of leaders, even though they may be praying to him and think they're doing his way. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. So what we're told in Scripture is that God actually brings nations up, and he brings nations down. Not like with a big fly swatter. I don't like you... No, they will come down as a result of turning away from God, especially if they've been blessed like we have been blessed. Go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel prayed for uh, an 
an understanding of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. And when he got that understanding, he did not take credit for it for himself. He gave God the credit. Start in verse 19 of Daniel chapter 2. So then the secret was revealed to Daniel in the night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, basically to Nebuchadnezzar, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he raises up kings. God removes kings and raises up kings. In some cases, he raises up kings to punish nations that have turned away from him. And we're going to see this happen in the future. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and secret things. So Daniel was giving credit to God. Go to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And you get about three different verses in this chapter. Verse 17, verse 25, and verse 33. But the latter part of each of those verses talks about that God... Uh, the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men. He's real. He makes prophecies. He brings them to pass. And the world is going to have to come to understand that there is a real God. And when he says you're going to be blessed for obedience and you're going to be punished for disobedience, that's actually going to happen. Nations are going to be impacted. Individuals are going to be impacted. You know, if somebody gives you a bad time for keeping the Sabbath or keeping the holy days, you might pray that God would be merciful. Pray that God would be merciful on them. Because God promised Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. So if something happens like that, leave it in God's hands, ask God to be merciful, and then you watch and see how God will work things out. You know, Romans 8.28 says that all things work to the good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. All things. I remember one time when I went to Ambassador College, I was out there, I was teaching at that time, and everything was going bad that morning. I got down to my knees in my office, and I just prayed. I said, God, please, would you work things out? And by 2 o'clock that afternoon, <laughs> it was worked out. I was, I've talked to some of you who's had the same experience. You've got to leave things in God's hands. You do what's right and ask God to remember the promises that he's made, that all things will work out to the good. And sometimes we're dealing with health situations or other situations. Ask God to guide you. Ask God to work things out for you. Again, we have to do our part. But let God do what he needs to do too and what he will do. You know, if you're looking for a a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or something like that, get God involved in the process. Get God involved with the process. You know, there's a story about the guy that was looking for a perfect wife. He's walking down the street, and all of a sudden, he saw the perfect wife. And he was about to say, wow, hello, and she walked right by him because she was looking for the perfect husband. (laughs) Get God involved. Get your parents involved with the process. Mom, Dad, what do you think? 
what do you think? You know, get your minister involved. Get some people involved that know you and perhaps know the other person. Uh, we recommend that people are beginning to date seriously do the Prepare and Enrich program. You just take some tests and you answer some questions and see what your priorities are and how well they match up. Uh, but there are, there are things that we can do to help us have a happier life. So we're going to be teaching people about the true God. We're going to be teaching people also that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And I would encourage you, I think I did this the other day, go through the booklets that we published on the real God. And there are other books. Read what some other people have written about God uh, so that you know. It's not, you're, not, you're not just reading, you know, following the party line, so to speak. There's a lot of interesting books on the proof of God. The booklet that we have on the Bible, Fact or Fiction. Again, there are a lot of other books about the Bible. You know, there's no other book on the face of the earth like this, literally, that are filled with prophecies. There's no prophecy in the Koran. There are no prophecies in the Book of Mormon. There are no prophecies in Confucius' writing. But there are about, what, 1,800 specific prophecies in the Bible. About 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ. There are no prophecies about uh, Muhammad. See, you, we've got something here that's totally unique. And I would encourage you, <laughs> take the time to do these things so that you know 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 <laughs> what the truth is. And help your children do those things. So God is going to provide shepherds to show people that there is a true God. There is a real God. Turn to Proverbs 14, verse 1. We're living in an age of doubt today, an age of criticism, uh, that there's no God, the Bible isn't real. Uh, you know, I had a friend in college. He was, a, I think he was a year or two older than I was. He was a wrestler, wrestled heavyweight. Uh, he was a big teddy bear. <laughs> but he, he, was, he was strong. He was a, he was a good wrestler. And uh, we got fairly well acquainted, and he said, Doug, let me give you some advice. He said, you seem like a decent guy, but just remember, nice guys finish last. Nice guys finish last. He's dead. He didn't finish. But he became a lawyer. But, again, the advice was nice guys finish last, so you better not be too nice. But that's exactly the opposite advice that we find in the Scripture. We're to be righteous. We're to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But we're to maintain a, a system of values. And we do that because we believe there's a God. We believe there's a God who's going to reward those who do what he says to do and is going to allow us face the consequences if we don't. Proverbs 14, verse 1. Excuse me, uh, Psalm 14, verse 1. I'm sorry if I said Proverbs. Psalm 14, verse 1. It says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Only a fool says there is no God. 
They're corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that does good. So part of our challenge in the coming kingdom of God is going to be teaching people there is a true God, that God has a way of life. You know, we had a class at Ambassador College. You can also buy books on that describe other religions in the world. Jainism and Hinduism, third largest religion in the world, has about a billion people. They believe in reincarnation. If you're good, you'll come back as another life. Uh, if you're good, you'll come back maybe as a prince or princess. If you're not too good, you'll come back as a grasshopper or <laughs> a worm. Or, or so. But th- these are the teachings. These are the teachings. These are nonsense. These are nonsense. Buddhism, Confucianism, they're not really religions. They're philosophies. They're philosophies. But there really is a God. There really is a God. It might be good if you have the time and the interest. Maybe read about some of these other religions. Find out what they believe. Because somebody's going to have to sit down with them and say, look, this is what you have believed. This is what you've been taught. But let me show you what's actually in the book. Let me show you what's in the book. Now, I'm not encouraging you to become a Buddhist or whatever, but to prepare to deal with these people. I remember visiting with the fellow who was in prison in a certain particular locale. I must have had, I don't know, eight or ten visits with him over two or three years. And he asked one time, he says, what am I going to be doing in the kingdom of God? I said, I don't know fully. But I said, you're having an experience that I'm not having. I said, you've been in jail for quite a period of time. You know all the games that these people play in here. <laughs> you, know, you know what goes on between their ears. Somebody's going to have to work with this population. You know, America has more incarcerated people than any other nation in the world. Than any other nation in the world. And somebody's going to have to work with these people. Somebody's going to have to work with them and show them that there is a different way to live. Again, you walk around in some of the prisons. What I noticed, I was in where the men were. Most of them had the sleeves ripped out of their shirts and they all work out, all these bulging muscles, because the idea is intimidate everybody. What I found was interesting, most of the guards knew the guys that were in the prison because they grew up in the same street. Some were put in prison, others got jobs in prisons. And it was a big kind of standoff, well, I'm tougher than you. But I kept trying to encourage them, I said, you're going to get out one of these days. What are you going to do when you get out? Well, I don't know. I said, well, you need to prepare. You need to prepare. Develop some skills of some kind so that when you're out, you'll have something to do. What I've seen, and I've visited a number of prisoners during that period of time. Generally, they get out, they go back to where they came from, and they get back into the same routine and wind up back in prison again because they're not prepared to deal with life on the outside. You know, the kingdom of God is coming. We're having an opportunity to prepare to literally change the world if we look ahead and begin to prepare for that and to teach people there is a true God. There are, there's, a, there's a true religion. 
We saw some stuff just recently. Uh, <clears throat> One of the religions in Southeast Asia, they're Taoists. They follow the way. And they have what they call a vegetarian festival. A vegetarian festival. Uh, and they worship the uh, nine emperor gods or something like that. But they go into a trance. And then they will put holes in their cheeks. And they'll stick a sword through there or they'll stick a tennis racket through there, the handle, not the other <laughs> part. And go on the Internet. Put in the Vegetarian Festival, Taoist, Southeast Asia. And it's incredible what they do to themselves. And then they invite these emperor gods, which are spirits, to come and dwell within themselves. They're called Maison, which means horse people. In other words, the spirits come and ride them. But th this is a false religion. You can go out, you know, one thing after another. Our job is going to be to show people that there is one true God, that this is his book, and there's a way of life that leads to peace and joy and happiness. How do you prepare for what's coming? I would encourage you to read. Read about some of these other religions what would you do if you were given the opportunity to be sent to Southeast Asia, sent to the Pacific, you know, up in the Caribbean? There's a lot of uh, voodoo influence up there. Where would you start working with these people? Where would you start if you were given that opportunity? If you were given a chance to work with people in prison or work with your neighbors, where would you start with your neighbors? What would you tell them? How could you help them? Think about it. Maybe ask the question differently. What would you like to do in the coming kingdom of God? Where would you like to start? I'd like to start with an island in the Caribbean. Because <laughs> it's small. You know, a number of years ago, we had the, the experience to fly down to Haiti for the Day of Atonement, I think it was. And you fly into Haiti and you, you look down from the air and you realize there's something wrong down there. There's no water in where should be rivers because they've clear-cut the, the brush and the trees off the hills to make charcoal. So you clear-cut everything. When it rains, there's nothing to hold the water back, no roots, and it rushes into the stream and then rushes out into sea. We flew into Jamaica and there were trees on the hills. There was water in the streams because they weren't destroying, because they had laws there. You couldn't do that. But if you can start with something small, then you build from there. But what would you like to do in the coming kingdom of God? Think about it. Pray about it. Prepare to deal with some of these things. That's number one. Our job is going to be to teach the world about the true God and about the Bible that it is God's word. I think Dr. Meredith used the phrase that the Bible is the word of God in print or the mind of God in print. He inspired it. And as we're reading it and studying it, we're drinking in what we need to drink in. Okay, point number two. <clears throat> point number two. We're going to be teaching mankind about right government about the type of government that God describes in the Bible. It's not democracy. 
It's not mafia rule. <laughs> it's actually described in the Bible. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Again, this is not rocket science. This is what we find written in the Scriptures. And if we just read what is there and we believe what is there, we have some solutions to some of the world's biggest problems. Isaiah chapter 9, it's a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Again, Isaiah was the Messianic prophet. In verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Christ is coming back to set up a government, a world-ruling government. It's going to start in Jerusalem and spread out from there. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. These are all descriptors describing what the government of God is going to be like. It's going to be wonderful. He's going to be a counselor. He'll give people advice. Members of that government will be able to advise people. Mighty God, he's able to do things that we can't do of and by ourselves. And of the increase of his government, mentioned twice here, once in each verse, of the increase of his government and peace, it's going to lead to peace, as we will see in just a minute. The increase of his government and peace will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it, establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Let's go to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. Where God is giving Moses instruction, actually it's coming from Moses' father-in-law, and Moses had to be humble enough to listen to his father-in-law. You know, we had a song back in the 60s, Mother-in-law, because mothers-in-law like to give their daughters-in-law a lot of advice. Maybe some of the fathers-in-law should give their sons-in-law <laughs> advice too. But Isaiah chapter, excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 18. Uh, let's see, starting here in verse Exodus chapter 18. Beginning verse 21. You know, the setting here was that Moses was trying to do everything by himself. And Jethro said, look, you're going to wear yourself out. You can't do it that way. You need help. You need people to help you out. So in verse 21, it says, Moreover, you shall select from the people able men, people with ability. People with ability. We find out in the New Testament, uh, Romans 12 and also 1 Corinthians 12, that we have different gifts. We have different abilities. Whenever you're planning your life, uh, you can do aptitude tests where you can find out what your aptitudes are. Uh, one of the books I went through whenever I was in my 20s, uh, I think it was called Be Yourself or something like that. But they break down aptitudes and probably 10, 15 different categories. Uh, you know, some people are, have the ability of manual dexterity. You can use your hands. You, you can make things with your hands. If you want to be a dentist, 
and you don't have manual dexterity, <laughs> it's not going to work out very good. And one of the tests for dental students, prospective dental students, they give you a piece of chalk about three inches long and about an inch across. And you're supposed to cut a notch in that. They want the, the piece of chalk coming back in one piece. <laughs> if it comes back, it's all crumbled. What that indicates is you don't have manual dexterity. And they don't want to give you a dental uh, license to put your fingers in somebody's mouth if uh, you can't get the right tooth. Uh, but it's a test for manual dexterity. Uh, some people have musical abilities. Some people can carry a tune and some people can't carry a tune. Uh, I found in taking the test that I've got uh, what the aptitude is called ideaphoria. In other words, you can create ideas. I worked with a fellow by the name of John Halford one time. And I asked somebody, what's it like working with John? He said, he's like a fire hose. He walks into a meeting and sprays ideas all over the place. But it's very helpful if you want to be a writer to have idea for you. Uh, I remember I used to tell the kids uh, stories about what my brother and like what my brother and like yeah <laughs> what my brother and I were like when we were little about this big <laughs> how we got sucked up in the sweeper <laughs> um, and then somebody made a movie out of that. Uh, <laughs> I just used it to tell stories. I didn't realize it had potential <laughs> like that. But these are aptitudes. Be helpful to find out what are your aptitudes and then begin to plan, how can I use those aptitudes in planning my life? God knows what our aptitudes are. And he's calling people with different aptitudes. What are your interests? If you can match your aptitudes with interests, you've got a winning ticket. Because you're going to be excited doing what you're doing. Part of our job is going to be to help people discover their own aptitudes and then use those aptitudes to glorify and honor God. It says select individuals. Uh, <clears throat> able people. People with ability. And part of our job as leaders in the church is to locate people that have aptitudes, have abilities. Uh, and such, notice there are other things here. You can have all kind of aptitudes, but if you don't fear God, then there are going to be consequences. So we need leaders that have abilities, that fear God, men of truth, and also women of truth that tell the truth. You know, if you don't tell the truth, you're going to have to remember everything you've ever said. <laughs> Because you're going to tell one person one thing and another person another thing, and they're going to see that sooner or later. I remember talking to an individual who was describing a certain minister, not from our, our group, but was part of Worldwide. I said, what do you think? He said he tells me one thing and he tells somebody else something else. And that's going to destroy your effectiveness. See, Moses was being told some very fundamental things here. Look for people with ability. Look for people that fear God. Look with people that tell the truth. They hate covetousness. They're not trying to get what they want for themselves. One of the problems in world governments today, wherever you go, people get into power. 
and they begin to accumulate things. I remember talking with an individual down in Big Sandy uh, during the change down there. And one, I think it was the guy's wife said, well, it's our turn to live in the big house now. It's our turn to live in the big house now. In other words, we're going to be in charge. Uh, I was advised by a minister some years ago. I was going out to speak. And he says, and there were turbulence in the church too back in 1974. He says, get the podium. Get the podium. Get up there where you can say something. It's a very carnal approach to things. I think God took care of that uh, with some of the things that have happened uh, in, in, in the church over the years. But able men, people that fear God, people that have the truth, that, that love the truth, that hate covetousness and place over, over rulers over thousands, over, over hundreds, over fifties and over tens. What that's describing is a pyramid type of government with levels of responsibility. There's nothing wrong with that. And yet I think one organization says, we're going to flatten the pyramid. We're going to flatten the pyramid. We're all going to be equal. Well, that's not God's form of government. You know, most corporations have a, uh, a corporate head, and they've got people over finance, and they've got people over personnel, and over this and over that. Uh, if you flatten everything out, we're all equal. That sounds good. But it's a formula for confusion. See, God has a system of government. It's a pyramid form of government. You find this also described in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. It's a hierarchical form of government. Some people are over other people. Not to lord it over other people, but to serve and to guide and to organize. Numbers 14, verse 4, just look it up on your own. The Israelites got a kind of fed up with Moses. You brought us out here to kill us. We will select our own leader, and we will go back to Egypt. It was democracy. And God didn't care for that. You know, whenever the churches came apart, some people said, we'll never be under Dr. Meredith. We'll never be under one man again. So they selected their own leaders. See, they're not looking at the book. They're looking at what models in the world. We mentioned yesterday, the other day, Matthew 20, verse 20, Jesus Christ says there, and this was addressing James and John's mother. You know, she came to him and said, Jesus, look, i got two wonderful boys. All I'm asking is just this little favor that you put one over, uh, put them both, one on your right hand and one on your left hand. Jesus said, uh, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. He said, we need to become servants. If we're looking for ways to serve as opposed to ways to being in front of people, then God can use us. A book written by Will and Ariel Durant entitled Lessons of History. Lessons of History. It's a small book, about maybe 100 pages long or less. It has a chapter on government and history. A chapter on government and history. What can we learn from history? His conclusion is very interesting. He says a monarchy is the most natural form of government. A monarchy is the most natural form of government. Having a king. 
Jesus Christ is going to come back as not the president, not the supreme ruler, but as a king. Durant says that monarchy is the most prevalent and longest lasting form of government. He said the Roman monarchy established by Augustus lasted for 200 years. What's interesting is it was an adoptive monarchy. Adoptive monarchy. They chose the most capable person and trained the person, not the sons necessarily, but the most capable person trained that person and gradually turned authority over to that person that was trained. You know, Dr. Meredith did that with Mr. Weston. He was brought in uh, to Charlotte, and he gradually assumed more and more responsibility. It was interesting. We'd be in a meeting, and somebody said, well, Dr. Meredith, what are we going to do for this? And Dr. Meredith said, Gerald, what are we going to do? (laughs) In other words, you make the decision. But he was there to guide. And we should do this with our children. You know, we tell them what to do when they're little. Don't you do that. But as they get older, you say, look, it would be wiser if you did it this way. In fact, compare the instructions that we find in... uh, Exodus, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. What do we find in Proverbs? A wise person will do this, <laughs> a fool will do that. As our children grow, we have to give them more room to make decisions. If you see them getting into a really bad decision, you better say, that's not the way to go. I remember one time, I think Scott was probably 16, 17, something like that, and he got a phone call. From where I don't know, the phone call was basically, you have just won a diamond bracelet. And now is your chance. <laughs> You've got to send in some money for this. And he said, well, okay. And I said, Scott, is that really what you want to do? What are you going to do with this diamond bracelet? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I'll give it to somebody. I said, how much money do you have in the bank? About $70 or $80. How much is the bracelet? About $79. I said, do you really want to do that? Well, I don't know. I said, why don't you call them back and tell them that you don't want it? So he called them back, and they were very short on the phone. Oh, you don't want it? But before that, they took five or ten minutes to say, oh, you're so wonderful, and you got all these things. There are times we need to give them advice. I had one other situation where I broke my neck in college. I was on a swimming team, hit the bottom of the swimming pool. And I was out of, out of school for a semester. And uh, <clears throat> the only way to graduate with my class was to take physics two semesters at once in the summer. And I think I started off my first exam in the first class was 25 out of 100. The first exam in the second class was 15 out of 100. And I thought, I'm not going to be able to do this. So I walked into the dean's office and Dr. Johnson said, I'm not going to be able to do this. He just looked at me and said, Winnell, you need to get your butt on the ball and pass these tests. I said, okay. <laughs> so I stayed up all night for the exams And I got through the exams, uh, passed the courses. But he wasn't going to let me play games. He said, you can do it. I didn't think I could, but I found out that I could. 
sometimes we have to say this is right, that's wrong, uh, and then help people make those decisions. One other comment here on government. Plato made an observation. This is 350 B.C. 350 B.C. He said there appear to be in human governments a sequence that they go through. They start out as monarchies, then the monarch dies, and they have what is called an oligarchy, his, his friends take over. And then that becomes a democracy, and then democracies become anarchies. And we're watching this happen in the United States today. We've been a democracy, and now everybody wants to do their own thing. And anarchy turns, is rescued by a dictator. A strong man comes in and says, I will solve the problems. And people say, well, we're in such a mess. Go ahead. But Plato made this observation 350 B.C. Monarchies become oligarchies, oligarchies, then democracies, then anarchy, and dictatorships. And we're going to see a strong man in Europe who's going to be rescuing whatever's going to happen over there. He describes, and this is from Will Durant's book, democracies have been hectic interludes between other forms of government. Hectic interludes between other forms of government. So we're living in a, what's becoming a very hectic period of time. You know, Abraham Lincoln made the statement that uh, a house divided against itself will fall. But he picked that out of Jesus' teachings about a house divided will fall. We're going to watch and see what's going to be happening. Part of our job when Jesus Christ comes back is to show people that God does have a form of government. David is going to be on the throne in Jerusalem over the 12 tribes of Israel. And then each one of the disciples is going to be over each one of the tribes. Now, this is just an example. This is a model. This is a model. We're not going to be electing leaders in the coming kingdom of God. They're being selected today. They're being selected today. David has been selected. He's a man after God's own heart. The 12 disciples have got their job that's coming. And then the question becomes, what about you and me? God has a model. He's calling us and preparing us for jobs in the coming kingdom of God. So if we can take that seriously, what would you like to do in the coming kingdom of God? What would you like to do? Pray about it. Talk about it. What problem would you like to solve? Who would you like to work with? What can you show them? How can you prepare? And Mr. Johnson was talking about the environment's going to be restored. Anything you'd like to do there? Educational systems are going to be restructured. Anything you'd like to do there? We'll talk about this just a little bit more. As leaders in the coming kingdom of God... We're going to have to be able to teach people God's way of life. We're going to have to be able to lead in a Christian manner. One of the things we've been talking about for years is, is leadership. You know, the military model in leadership is shut up, come to attention, you do what I tell you, or you're out of here. 
I think in church we've had ministers that have functioned that way because they came out of a military background. We can't deal with volunteers (laughs) that way. You can deal with GIs, government-issued troops, that way, that pay your bill. But we need to deal with people with love, with gentleness, sometimes with firmness. The way you deal with your family, the way you deal with your kids, the way you deal with your employees, the deal with your church members. We, we need to inspire. We need to show that they're loved and cared for. These are all skills that we can develop now. They're skills that we can develop now. But study leadership. There are plenty of good books on the subject. Let's move on to um, number three. We're going to be teaching people God's laws and God's way of life. God's laws and God's way of life and the benefits that come from living God's way. You know, we're told in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, that the law is going to go forth from Jerusalem. God's law has not been done away with. It's going to go forth from Jerusalem. It's going to be the Ten Commandments, the statutes of God. You know, much of our Constitution today, much of the Constitutions in many of the Western world, are based on biblical principles. They're based on biblical principles. We're going to be showing people how to apply those biblical principles. I think as Mr. Weston mentioned on the first night of the feast, Zechariah 14, the last several verses, that the whole world is going to be taught to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And the nation that doesn't co up one year, they're not going to get any rain the next year to show them that you know, we really need to be there. They're going to be taught about the Sabbath, that we need a day of rest. We need a day of rest. They're going to be taught the rest of God's law. There are a lot of biblical principles that deal with the environment. Mr. Johnson mentioned some of those this morning. That God gave Adam and Eve the challenge of managing the earth, dressing and keeping the earth. You violate the biological laws that this earth was designed to operate on. It's not going to function right. But if you learn to live in harmony with those laws, then the earth is going to blossom like a rose. You know, people are told today that we're animals. Human beings are just naked apes. I <laughs> came across another book. It was entitled Seven Truths That Changed the World. Seven Truths That Changed the World. And it has two chapters on human beings that human beings are not animals. And it just shows some of the differences. What do you have on your wrist? A wristwatch. Your dog ever wear one? Your cat ever wear one? (laughs) We're time-oriented creatures. Animals are not. We have a religious dimension in our lives. You look at any civilization, any group of people, whatever continent you're looking at, they have their religions. When you go home from the feast, you have a dog or a cat, you're going to find them out in the front porch. Maybe the dog is leading songs. You've got a cat choir over here. Meow, meow, meow. (laughs) 
This is silly. But animals don't do those things. I think somebody mentioned watching the sunset last night. Do you ever see your dog out in the front porch watching the sun go down? <laughs> no. See, we're not animals. The Bible says that. But educated people say that we're animals. This is nuts. This is crazy. The Bible describes social roles for individuals, for people. Genesis 2 talks about God created a man and a woman. They're to leave their mother and father and dwell with, with each other. Man's to leave his mother and father and dwell with his wife. doesn't say partner. <laughs> it says with his wife. And men and women have different roles. This is one example, and we'll wind things up here. The world wants peace today. We have the United Nations. We have negotiations. The Pope wants to get all the religions together to bring peace. Notice a couple of scriptures, just as very specific. Good Isaiah, <clears throat> I think it's 59, Isaiah 59 <clears throat> and verse 8. This is what God revealed about 2,500 years ago. The world wants peace. They've tried nuclear armaments and arms races and whatever. We've got to be strong so that we can prevent war. Isaiah 59, verse 8, it says, The way of peace they have not known. Human beings do not know the way to peace. And yet Christ is coming back to be the prince of peace. The law is going to go forth from Jerusalem and bring peace. How is that going to happen? Go next to uh, Psalm 119, verse 165. Psalm 119, verse 165. Now, these are the keys. These are the keys to solving a major problem in the world today, the need for peace. Psalm 119, verse 165. It says, Great peace have those who love your law. Great peace have those who love your law. If you're not going to kill, you're not going to steal, you're not going to commit adultery, there's going to be peace. So we've got to point people back to the law of God. Isaiah chapter 2, let's go back there. We've been talking about that. Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4. It says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. In other words, God's government is going to be over all the other governments in the world. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations will flow to it or look to it for guidance and direction. And people will say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of God, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. And out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations, rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. This is a prophecy, a prophecy. 
Nation shall not lift up nation against another, lift up the sword against another nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In the United States, we've got West Point training officers for the Army, at the Naval Academy, in Annapolis training officers for the Navy with the Air Force Academy in Colorado, training officers. But they're learning how to fight. They're learning how to kill other people. I think in the, the academies, they use a sanitary phrase, we're just servicing the target. We're servicing the target, how to kill somebody else. All that effort is going to be pointed in a different direction. You look at what we spend. America spends more on defense than almost, what, the next 10 or 12 nations. All that money is going to be pointed in a different direction and teaching people the way to peace. So that we're prepared to teach in the coming kingdom of God. But make a list, qualities of great teachers, and then pick out one or two to start working on. Pick out one or two things to start working on. If you're going to preach a sermon on a subject, get the scriptures that are relevant. Read some books, read some articles about the subject. How do you apply it? Have some personal lessons there. Let me give you a couple scriptures here. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Ezra chapter 7. Ezra was among the captives in Babylon. He was sent up to, uh, he got permission to go up to Jerusalem as they were rebuilding Jerusalem. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, it says, This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. How did he become a skilled scribe? When I was in college, I tried what they called sleep learning. I put on a tape of lectures. I thought, well, I'll just listen to the tape and I'll be prepared for the test. So I went to sleep and didn't remember a thing. It was a gimmick. You know, Ezra was a skilled scribe because he studied the word. He copied it. And as you copy things, you remember it. But he was a skilled scribe. They came up to Jerusalem. He was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. So he studied the law of Moses. Exodus, chapter 20, 21, 22, 23. Notice in verse 10, when he got to Jerusalem, it says, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of God and to do it. He prepared his heart to seek and do the law of God and to teach the statutes and the ordinances in Israel. This is why God tells us now, study the word, prepare to teach, prepare to explain. And there's nothing wrong with studying the word of God and preparing to teach it. Because then God can see that and he can use that in the coming kingdom of God. So, brethren, I would encourage you. We know what our job is going to be in the coming kingdom of God. We're going to be kings. We need to learn how to lead in a wise and loving way. We're going to be priests. We're going to be teaching the way of God. We need to study and understand how to apply the word of God. 
We're going to be teachers that are going to say, no, this is the way. You've tried it that way. And history shows that many people have tried it that way. We're going to do it this way. And you get some people say, well, we don't want to do it that way. Fine. (laughs) But this is what we're going to do. And watch what's going to happen to your life through the coming year. I think they'll find out. Now, last year you said we should do it that way. Would you repeat that (laughs) instruction? We're ready to try it now. We're ready to try it. Brethren, we've got an exciting future to become kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God. Hope you'll listen carefully for these sermons that are coming for the rest of the feast. Certainly wish you well that you have a wonderful feast. The flyovers are over. (laughs) None for when we get out of here. (laughs) Have a good feast, brethren.